Let's now turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, and we'll read beginning at verse 24, John 5, verse 24, and we'll continue down to verse 40. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp. And you are willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you. Because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. That you are not willing to come to me, that you may have life. Our text this morning is verses 31 through 40. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when Jesus was on trial before Pilate, He uh, testified that indeed he was the king uh, who came to bear witness to the truth. And then you recall Pilate's uh, cynical response. What is truth? As if any claim to have any kind of knowledge, any possession of absolute truth is diluted. Uh, Pilate reflects a, a, a cynical view about the very possibility of having or knowing the truth. And I used to think that that's that's the worst possible mindset or attitude that people might have, uh, to doubt that there even is such a thing as truth. But now I think I was wrong in that assessment, because I think there's actually something that's worse than that. And what I'm referring to is the confident uh, certainty that many seem to have about My truth, my feelings, my experience, my choices, my emotions. That's what determines reality. That's what determines reality for me. And that reality is above everything else. 
And if others don't validate my truth, if they don't uh, affirm my truth, if they don't uh, celebrate my truth, well, then they're haters. They're enemies to my very identity. And this attitude uh, today affects everything from uh, human sexuality. That's a point in which this kind of language is often heard in terms of the way people identify themselves. But it also affects the way people listen to the Bible. It affects the way people listen to sermons. And you might say, now, Pastor, that's a real stretch. Huh? You're, you're moving from uh, the way people self-identify with respect to uh, matters of sexuality to the way people listen to the Word of God. That, that's not a stretch. Because very often the same thing is going on. It's not a leap. No, the Word of God itself can be read or it can be heard to affirm my thinking. Or it can be read or heard not to change my thinking, but to support my feelings. Not to challenge or correct them, but to justify my choices. Not to direct them. And everything or everyone that agrees with uh, me, well, that that's fine and good. And a sermon that does that is a good sermon. But a sermon that fails to fit the groove of my way of thinking a sermon that fails to connect with me in terms of my truth, the way I feel, well, that kind of sermon is either rejected or in a way you might say it's not even really heard. It doesn't get through. It doesn't fit in those grooves in which people are so accustomed to thinking that my feelings, my choices... That's what's real. That's what determines everything. You see, now, true conversion changes all that. It makes us alive to the truth as it is in Jesus. That's how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 4. And he sets us on this lifelong uh, campaign. He gives us a new mandate. He gives us a new mission that's really described by the Apostle Paul as he defines that, that, that spiritual Christian warfare of the mind and heart when he just says our weapon, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That's the pathway of sanctification. That's the life of learning to live, not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And whatever I feel, whatever my choices may have been, if they do not conform to that perfect rule of God's holy word, My struggle, my challenge is to bring my emotions, my feelings, my choices in line with the truth. That begins when people truly learn Christ, to use other language from the Apostle Paul. They learn Christ as he is revealed, as the Son of God, as the only Savior, the one who liberates us uh, from the lies that otherwise keep us enslaved to the world, to the devil, to ourselves. You shall know the truth. The truth shall set you free. 
That change begins when people learn Christ, whom all should honor just as they honor the Father. And our text this morning is about that the rock-solid basis for such belief in him and his infallible, his divine testimony. In that testimony, Jesus leaves all without excuse for unbelief. That's our theme that we're looking at this morning. And we're going to uh, begin by considering how Jesus proclaims and, and he explains the abundant testimony uh, to himself. And there are, there are three things that we can specify as, as, uh, making up this abundant testimony. First of all, uh, John, John the baptizer, he testified of Jesus. In verse 33, Jesus says to the Jews, referring particularly to the Jewish leaders who were treating him as if he were on trial. He performed that miracle of healing the blind man on the Sabbath. And then in response, he made some statements that outraged the Jews, having made himself equal with God, and they're interrogating him. And he's answering. And he cites a testimony. He brings forth a witness. He says, you have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Now, Jesus is referring to something that literally took place during the ministry of John. We read about it in the first chapter. In chapter 1, it says in uh, verse 19, now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? There was this delegation, verse 24 tells us that those who were sent were from the Pharisees. The Jewish leaders sent the delegation to John with the question, who are you? And what was John's testimony at this point? Well, there are many things that he said, and they're all very relevant to what Jesus is referring to. He affirmed, for one thing, that he is not the Christ. He is not the promised Messiah. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Then who are you? Well, he is the voice crying in the wilderness. In other words, he refers to scripture, Isaiah chapter 40, that prophesies of the one who would come to prepare the way of the Lord. He is the one who testified concerning the Lord Jesus Christ as one who is among them, as one who was before him, that is before John, even though John was born before Jesus. He testified of Jesus as one that is greater than John. He testified of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He testified of Jesus as the one on whom the Holy Spirit came and as the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He testified of Jesus in verse 34, saying, And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The Jews sent to John, and he bore witness to the truth. Now Jesus is really condescending uh, to the Jewish leaders by citing John's uh, witness, because he makes clear that the truth of Jesus' testimony does not depend upon John as if he were simply depending upon man. He makes that clear in verse 34. Yet I do not receive testimony from man. But I say these things that you may be saved. And by his answer, Jesus was basically following uh, the law of judicial testimony. 
And you're familiar with that. It's repeated often in Scripture. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. And Jesus was following the legal demand for more than one witness. In fact, that's how we have to understand what he said in verse 31. He said in verse 31, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now, of course, Jesus is not saying that if I bear witness of myself, I'm lying. I'm not telling the truth. No, he's simply acknowledging that his testimony cannot stand simply on his own witness. In fact, a few chapters later, Jesus was accused of this very thing. Of, uh, of, of testifying of himself. In John chapter 8, the Pharisees said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. In other words, it's not valid. You just have your self-testimony. And Jesus responds this way. He says, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. And then in verse 18, a few verses later, he says, I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Oh yes, he has other witnesses to cite. And here he cites the Father himself. In fact, in our text, Jesus also cites the witness of the Father. And we'll return to that. But first of all, we see that uh, John is bearing testimony or Jesus is bearing testimony to the fact that John, who was sent to prepare the way for him, bore faithful witness to who he is. Now, what are they going to do? Reject John altogether? We know from other accounts they didn't dare to do that. They didn't dare to deny that John was a great prophet sent from God. And so Jesus is bringing forth some pretty powerful testimony concerning himself here. But it doesn't stop there. It gets better and better. Secondly, Jesus' works bear witness to him. That is, Jesus' miracles, miracles of healing. Even one of their own, Nicodemus, you recall, who came to Jesus by night, said, Teacher, we know that you are from God, for no one can do such works unless God is with him. They recognized that Jesus indeed performed these amazing works. In John chapter uh, 10, verse 24 and 25, the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. As if he'd never done that. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. This is a very prominent theme. Later on in the same chapter 10, Jesus actually condescends to them in effect saying, well, don't just listen to my words. If you don't believe what I say, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I am in him. Isn't that a tremendous thing that Jesus does here? He says, if you don't consider me to be credible, look at the things I do. What's your explanation? Do they not verify that in fact I came from the Father? That's an irresistible kind of argument according to Scripture. 
Jesus uses the same condescending language even to his own disciples as he as he seeks to establish them in the faith concerning the truth of who he is. In chapter 15, uh, verse verse 24, well, he speaks of the Pharisees. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. It's in chapter 14 that Jesus says to his disciples, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. How many miracles did Jesus perform? How many wonders that testified of an absolutely unique power that he demonstrated according to the Scriptures, according to what the Bible said about him. Remember when John, while he was in prison, sent uh, two to uh, inquire of Jesus as to whether he is the one who should come or should they look for another? And you remember Jesus' reply. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to him. He's basically quoting from Isaiah. The description of the Messiah. What he would do. And Jesus fulfilled the, the scriptures to the letter. It's like, what, what more could he say? What more could Jesus do? Would they believe if he rose from the dead? What do you think? And yet there is another testimony. And uh, it's very closely related to this, but it's like the greatest of all. The Father who sent him testifies to Jesus. In verse 32, Jesus says, well, yeah, that's the first reference there. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. That's basically like an introduction to what he's going to say later. He's not referring to John here. We know who he's referring to from verse 37. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. Now we ask the question, how did the Father testify of Jesus? And uh, we might be inclined to, to think, first of all, that Jesus uh, verbally testified uh, to him and of him at his baptism. When the voice came from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Or we might think, indeed, that the Father uh, testified of him through the works of the Father that were done by Jesus. And yes, he had just referred to those works. And that's significant. These things are true. But Jesus goes on to explain this testimony of the Father, not in terms of a voice and not in terms of his works, but even bigger than that. He refers to this testimony of the Father with reference to his word and with reference to the scriptures. You have neither heard his voice at any time, neither uh, seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me. So we want to see that connection between the Father's testimony and the Word and the Scriptures. You see, this testimony directs them and it directs all uh, to the written Word of God. 
You know that that's treated in Scripture as the ultimate testimony concerning who Jesus is. And perhaps the most powerful demonstration of that is in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You know the story. The rich man refused to feed and to help this poor man that was laid at his gate every day. He ignored his need. He died and went to hell. Lazarus died and was carried to Abraham's bosom. He was brought to heaven. And the rich man, seeing that great gulf that, that separated them, asked that Lazarus might be sent to dip his finger in water and to cool his tongue because he's tormented in the flames and his request is refused. And he makes another request that Lazarus would be sent back to warn his brothers that they don't come to this place. And you remember the response? They have Moses and the prophets. But the rich man isn't satisfied. No, no, if somebody rose from the dead, they would listen. And the response is, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, they will not hear even though one should rise from the dead. People that are waiting for a miracle, people that are looking for some tangible proof that's better than the Bible, they're not going to get it. There is no greater testimony than the holy word of God. Because it's the testimony of God. It is indeed his holy word. In a way, these other testimonies depend upon it, right? The authenticity of John's testimony is in the fact that he came also, or he was sent according to scripture. He himself cites the Bible. He's the voice crying in the wilderness. We know from elsewhere that he is the one whom Malachi prophesied as the Elijah that would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the father. Jesus confirms that interpretation. John is that second Elijah, that prophet of repentance. And the works that Jesus did were works that were prophesied in Scripture concerning what he would do. So in a way, these other testimonies also direct us to the Word of God. This testimony does not depend on an audible voice from heaven. You have neither heard his voice. It does not depend on seeing a physical form, nor have you seen his form. It requires humble faith. Humble faith in what lies at the very heart of the message of God's word from beginning to end. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. The word of God from beginning to end is about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills all those blood sacrifices of the old covenant. They all pointed to him with all their variety. He is the son of David. He is the king who would occupy the throne of the universe whose kingdom shall have no end. From the seed of the woman in Genesis 3 to the son of righteousness in the last chapter of the book of Malachi. It's about Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus told the travelers to Emmaus? Or what he did beginning at Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things pertaining to himself. An abundant testimony that Jesus cites. And in doing so, Jesus exposes the unreasonableness of unbelief. Because unbelief meant then, and in many respects it means the same thing today. 
Unbelief meant, for one thing, renouncing former impressions, right? And we go back to verse 35 concerning John the baptizer. It says, he was the burning and shining lamp. And you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. He was not that light. He's not referred to as the light of the world. That's repudiated also in John's gospel. But he's a lamp. He bore testimony to the light. And uh, the Jewish leaders themselves are described as having been very moved by that. They even rejoiced in that light. You know that there are those who receive the word uh, and uh, they rejoice, but they have no root in themselves. And when they face hardship, they fall away. So first impressions, even rather deep impressions, very strong emotional impressions, they can fade away, right? Isn't that something to be alarmed at or perhaps to be aware of? How often do those who turn away from the faith turn away from such hopeful signs that they appear to possess as children when they seem to have been deeply moved by the word of God, sometimes profoundly affected, giving evidence of a hopeful faith. And sometimes time proves that those impressions were passing and they were temporary. They did not last. And these Jewish leaders appear to have abandoned first impressions. Their unbelief involved resisting gracious appeals. Isn't it astounding? Jesus humbly reasoned with the Jews. He gives argument upon argument. He bears testimony. Very reasonable testimony. And remember, they were out to kill him, right? Their their goal was to convict him of some uh, crime that would... Uh, justify their desire to take away his life. And Jesus reasons with them, and he tells them why he reasons with them, that they might be saved. Unbelief involves people judging themselves unworthy of eternal life. That's the way Paul puts it. Unbelief in the face of the abundant testimony concerning the Lord Jesus Christ involves choosing death rather than life. Unbelief, as Jonah puts it, involves forsaking your own mercy. The one and only way of saving mercy from God is forsaken. People turn their backs on the one and only saving revelation of deliverance. Yes, their unbelief involved resisting gracious appeals. It involved rejecting the Father's gift. They had the precious word of God revealing the coming of the ultimate gift of God in his Son. And they searched the Scriptures. That's a, that's a, a an indicative statement there. I know there's some debate, because sometimes the indicative can be read in the imperative, but but the, the context makes clear that when, when Jesus says, you search the Scriptures, he's describing what they do, and he explains the reason why they do that. They believe that somehow they find life in the Bible. Now we might uh, we might also infer that the way they thought they found life is by being superior to others in their spirituality and keeping the details of the law. In fact, they had very superstitious views of the power of the Bible. They liked to count different statistical information and take great pleasure in some of those details that really had nothing to do with the central message of the Bible. I used to marvel at the fact that on my shelf I had I had word studies 
that were detailed and meticulous and accurate that are still used today by Orthodox theologians. And they were written by theological liberals who didn't even believe in Christ as the Son of God and the Savior. It's like, what motivates people to devote their lives to that kind of scholarly, biblical activity? What happens? You search the Scripture that in them you think you have life and you will not come to Me. The Scriptures testify of Me. They missed the whole point. They studied the Bible, but they didn't treasure its true message in their hearts. Its truth didn't abide in them, Jesus says. They believe that life is to be found in God's Word, but they rejected the only one in whom life is given. Their unbelief involved refusing the Savior's invitation. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. J.C. Ryle says unbelief does not arise so much from a lack of evidence as from a lack of will to believe. Paul says if our gospel is veiled or it's hidden, it's hidden to those who are perishing, whom the God of this world has blinded their hearts, lest the light of the gospel, of the glory of God in Jesus Christ should shine on them. You know that the proof of unbelief is not in what sinners do. The proof of unbelief, ultimately, for those who hear the gospel, is in what they fail to do. They do not come to Christ. They do not heed His call. They do not understand it. They do not respond to it. They do not come to the Savior, the living Christ, in all their sin and in all their need to be saved by Him from their sin, from themselves, on His terms, in the way He offers complete redemption to all who repent and believe. They don't do that. And such unbelief is the ultimate foolishness. That's one thing that we have to see. Herman Bovink wrote a book called Our Reasonable Faith. The Christian faith is reasonable. It's based on a, a sound uh, historical record. It's, it's based on many infallible proofs to use the language of Scripture with respect to the, the works of Jesus Christ that testify to His resurrection. Oh, there are things that are far beyond reason, but that itself is very reasonable, isn't it? Isn't it reasonable that the infinite and eternal God should be beyond our comprehension? Isn't it reasonable that we should know ourselves to be but creatures that are to submit our minds to the truth of God's Word? And not find... Uh, salvation in our own wisdom, but to surrender our wisdom to the wisdom of God. That's very reasonable. And those who want to believe the truth discover increasingly, ever more deeply, that there's nothing like the Word of God. There's nothing like its truth, the brilliance, the, the perfection, the brightness, the delight there is in the truth of God. Unbelief chooses my truth over the way, the truth, and the life. On this sermon in connection with preparing to come to the Lord's table, I ask you, have you repented of that? Have you repented of your truth to submit your mind and heart to the truth of Jesus Christ? There's nothing more liberating 
Now I'm talking about repentance. Oh yes. There's nothing more joyful than true repentance because it involves the faith that turns away from ourselves and comes to Christ. Have you done that? Are you doing that? Right? That's, that's, that's what the Christian life is all about. It's continually living by the Word of God, seeking our life in Christ, continuing to repent of our sins, continue to fight against and resist that tendency to think our own thoughts and go our own way and to treat the Bible as a, as a book to affirm us rather than to change us. And may God continually grant this grace of repentance and life in Jesus Christ. Amen.